0: Yeah, I want to welcome everybody here today. We're going to start today with a video, so we're going to, I'm going to show you a video real quick. I like that clip. Um, when the last, let's see, four years ago, I started getting my counselor degree, and I hated these things. In counseling class, they would do what they call fish bowls, where you had to sit in front of your peers and either play the client or play the um, the therapist or the counselor. So I hated that because I did not want to one expose who my my issues, and two I didn't want to expose the fact that I had no clue what to do with other people's issues. Um, so we, I would try to play games. Um, so I would nor I would pick the most what I thought dysfunctional person there and and throw on them the worst case scenario just so that they would focus on the person's um, problems, the person that's being the counselor. <laughs> they would focus on their ability, not ability to handle that situation. Or I would, as a counselor, just disconnect. So if I was playing the counselor and I was listening to someone give me their problems, a lot of times the professor in the fishbowl would say, stop. And she'd look at me and she'd say, Jackie, where'd you go? Where are you? And bottom line, I was totally disconnected from the heart of that person. And over the last four years, I've I've questioned, why is it that I feel so disconnected with adults? I chose to work with kids. I think that's a gift. I know that's a gifting within me, is to work with kids. But another motivation to work with kids was the fact that I, I related differently with kids than I did with adults. And there are several reasons why. I started looking at this and there's there's two there's one thing that we need to really realize and that is the fact as a group we draw, our drive is for connection. We want connection with others. We want to be able to feel and be included and belong to a group. We know this is true because we have Facebook and social media. F- uh, Facebook has been one of your Biggest growing industries, and it's all about human connection. But something really interesting about Facebook is the fact that when I'm on Facebook, I only highlight what I want to highlight, right? I only want to complain if I want to get the right attention for complaining. Or you're like me, you stalk other people's pages, and when you see a connection, you like it, right? Because you're still trying to connect. But part of you says, no one's really interested in what I have to share. So a lot, we're looking for a connection, but a lot of times we're disconnected. And if we look at our society today, we're even more, I think, disconnected than we've ever been. We have more addiction. We have more eating disorders. We have more uh, mental illness than we ever had before. I was listening to the guy, my daughter was showing me a clip, and it was a guy that knows about current culture and where we're going as a culture of people. What his view is, in the future, we're all going to work in cyber worlds. So we create our avatar and our persona, and we actually go on dates in a cyber world, or we actually communicate with people in a cyber world. To me, that's scary, because I think that's going to bring more issues as we go on. So why is it that we avoid connection when we want it the most? First thing is shame. Shame is a type of feeling that makes you want to hide. Shame disconnects you from people. One example I could think of that is obvious was, was when I was in college. When I was in college, I, I went out on a date And this date had his brother and his girlfriend. And we decided to go to a restaurant late at night. As we were on the date, I remember thinking that my date's brother's girlfriend, I remember looking down on her. I thought she was vapid. She was an airhead. I thought she was silly. I just, I really had judged her in my mind of who she was. So we ate. We're walking out of the parking lot. We see this group of of guys, probably in their 20s. There's probably about five or six of them. And they looked at my date and they said, what are you looking at? My date in return responded with a smart remark. Next thing you know, we've got six of these guys punching and kicking my date. They had him on the ground. They're kicking him in the ribs. They're kicking him in the face. And to my dismay, I froze. I just froze. I just sat there and watched Finally, the girl that I had judged jumped in front of them and said, stop, don't. And in response, the people that were kicking and punching, they got up, got in the car and left. My date was okay. His face was swollen. His eye was swollen shut. But I have carried the shame of that night with me for the last 30 years. I woke up the next morning and I was ashamed of myself for freezing, for just standing there and doing nothing. And what I noticed was because of that shame, I began to distance myself from that person and eventually break off the relationship. And it was due to shame. And I have carried that shame with me for the last 30 years. In school, now we, we practice lockdown drills. When I was in the 80s, I don't know if you guys remember this, but we used to practice nuclear um, attacks. You know, we'd get under a desk, head between the... Today we do lockdown drills, and actually the threat is more real than the nuclear um, drills that we did when I was younger. So what we do is we sit in there as teachers with their class, and our doors are locked. But in my mind, I go over and over and over again of what my response would be if we had an intruder, because I don't want to repeat what I did 30 years ago. Because I've carried this, and it's been such a strong strong piece of shame. And only recently did I decide to cast it off and forgive myself for that. So shame is a huge part that keeps us separated from other people. We don't want people to know that we've done terrible things. We don't want people to know some of the things that we've made mistakes on. And so we don't share that part of our lives. I've also think sometimes in, in church... We run into a lot of shame because sometimes I'm mad at God. I'm mad at Jesus. And we're supposed to always love Jesus, regardless what. So, how do you say that in church without feeling shame that you, when you're told to love Jesus at all times? Do we ever share all of that? That's how bullies at school control others around them. They shame them. And I see this on a daily basis where shame is a tool that bullies use in order to subvert different children within the playground. I, I stand outside and I do recess duty and I see kids stand, sitting by themselves. And whenever I see someone sitting by themselves day in and day, after, day out, you know there's got to be something wrong there because of an unwillingness to connect to others. So I always try to seek those students out and find out what is the basis for their loneliness and for them wanting to be um not accepted. The other thing that keeps us disconnected from others is comparison. We love to compare. When we first have our children, we take them over to the doctor, and we bring them to the doctor. What are they first thing they do? They measure their length and their weight, and then they pull up a chart. And they say, your child is on the 90th percentile, either on too big or too small. And then we start worrying because they, of the comparison that we have with our children. Um, This last week, I went to a school concert, and I love watching the school concerts. I always volunteer to go as the teacher in charge, and we had a school concert this this uh, last week of first graders. And there were four classes of first graders, and they were given the task to dress up like barnyard animals. So we had one class, they all dressed up like little pigs. Another class, they all dressed up like chickies. The other class was sheep. And then we had cows. And it was really interesting to me to see the creativity that each parent used in order to make their child resemble this animal. And you could see the audience. I was looking around the audience, and you could see the parents. And you know what's going on in their minds. You know what it is. My costume. Oh, my gosh, I wish I would have remembered to put this in my costume. Or how come I didn't think of those socks? So we're constantly comparing ourselves With others. One reason why I chose to work with kids is because it was too painful for me to sit and compare myself to adults. It was a very painful thing for me, and I constantly did it. It was like a movie in my head going over and over and over again. I would look at people and look at the way they were dressed, and always I would suffer in comparison. I was always the one that was putting myself down when I looked at others and said, Man, if I could only be this way, if I only could do this. If I could only do that, if I could only be and on and on and on. And we justify it by saying we're competitive or we want to be the best that we can be. We hear from our parents when we're younger that we can be anything we want to be in the whole world and we need to shoot for the stars. And then when we don't reach the stars when we're adults, we feel like something happened. We don't feel like we're enough. So we disconnect from society because shame comes in and we decide this is a shameful thing that I've wasted all of these resources that were given to me. But we have to consider when we compare ourselves with others, it's not a logical comparison. Intellectually, it doesn't make sense. When we look at our lives, we look at what makes us. When we look at the decisions that we make daily, I was um, silly enough to try to Google how many decisions does a human being make per day? Well, I don't know if you can quantify that. I, heard I got anything from 3,500 decisions a day to, you know, five. But what we know is our brain takes in only the stimulus that it can handle. So that's the first decision. What do we take into our life? From that information, how do we make decisions So on a day-to-day basis, we are making decisions to go one way or the other. I could make on my way to work to do a shortcut to work and miss an accident that I could have been in, right? Or I could maybe have not made that mistake and been in that accident. We all make decisions. I could decide to say hello to someone, not to say hello to someone, to say a word to someone that may be valuable. I could run into tragedy and respond to it in different ways. And I could either respond well or not respond well. It's just still a part of my life. I talk to kids when they come in because I deal with discipline a lot. And sometimes I get criticized by the way I deal with discipline because I think people want me to put the hammer on these kids. And you look at these naughty, naughty kids that come in and you can't believe some of the things they've done, like start waste can, uh, trash cans on fire or something, you know, that's pretty... Um, pretty bad and they come in and we talk about choices I see you made a choice today didn't you I always call it choices not that you're bad or good but we always talk about you made a choice today didn't you and this choice didn't go very well did it so I talk about choices because choices either take us one way or another We look at our backgrounds, we know we come from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different thoughts, different parenting. I see that every day, different parenting. Um, We have different ideals and values of what we believe in. Some of us grow up with pets. Some of us don't grow up with pets. So how do we honestly and intellectually compare ourselves to others? It doesn't make sense. When I was looking at comparison and the act of comparison with human beings, I said there is two comparisons. There's a social comparison where we compare ourselves to others, and we do one of two things: we find ourselves lacking, or we desperately seek those who are less than us so that we can look better about ourselves. I hate it. Sometimes I used to teach um, um, Charles Dickens' The Christmas Story, the Scrooge story. And it always rubbed me wrong when you see Tiny Tim saying that he was excited he was at church. Because when people saw his disability, they would feel better about themselves because they were void of disability. And that was an outward judgment that I thought was wrong for that to be in that play. I just thought it was a horrible comparison of what we really truly are as human beings. Um so comparing ourselves to others makes no sense and it disconnects ourselves. Another way to compare ourselves would be temporal comparisons. And how we've temporal comparisons would be 10 years ago I made this mistake so I'm going to learn from it, right? Or I could say, I keep doing the same thing over and over again 12 different times, and I keep ending up with the same result. Maybe that's not a good idea. That's temporal, how we've dealt with life from beginning to end. The other thing about social comparison that is interesting is when you compare yourself to others, you end up hating your past. For example, you'll look at those families that are doing well financially and doing well economically, or maybe chose, like, the perfect, I don't know, provider or whatever, and you compare your life to theirs, and you start regretting things that you did in the past. For example, I'll look at friends who are doing very well financially, because they started early. They started early in life on a career, and they, they invested wisely. They kept their credit up, and I'll look at that and I'll think, man, if I wasn't such a poor student in college, which I was a poor student in college, I would have gotten a better job out of college and I would have been farther along the way financially. And so I hate my past. We all have pasts. And we all look back on our pasts with regret in some ways. We're kind of like these guys right here. We look back on our past and we want to divorce ourselves from our past. We want to be able to not be tainted by the past that we have or infected with what we've brought in our lives. So we dishonor our past. Instead, we should be looking at our past as a research project. We look at what we've done in the past and we say, I've researched this before. I had hands-on experience with this situation, and this is what I've learned And this is what I will choose to do next time in order to make things right. So we should honor the past regardless of where we come from. Instead, what we end up doing is we end up exaggerating ourselves. We end up exaggerating things that we've done in the past. We end up exaggerating our importance. Or we hide from others. And we don't want to explore and talk about our past. So when people ask us, about our past, well, oh, let's just talk about the future. We don't want to give ourselves to, any, to others. The other thing we do when we compare, and when we look at our past life, we want to protect our children. Because we don't want them to go through the same pain that we went through. And we're actually teaching our kids not to have a research paper. And I see this every single day with parents who hover around their kids, making sure that they don't feel pain, making sure that they don't have complex problems to solve unless they're there to do it with them. I see parents holding their eighth graders' hands to the class because they don't want anything to happen. They want to be able to protect their child and and insulate them from, from bad things or bad social issues. Uh, I see parents calling me saying their child's being bullied because they're worried that their child won't be able to handle such a complex situation. So we tend to have our parenting affected because we don't honor the struggle that we have from our past. We don't see that the fact that we're still here after everything that we've been through shows that we have an incredible sense of resiliency, an incredible sense to be able to grit our teeth and move forward. So how, what we really need to start doing is we need to look at our lives, our past, and we need to embrace that as something that we have shared, gone through, and learned from. So I knew this was the case, but I was trying to think what Bible's application, how does this apply to Christians and why is this relevant for us today? Four years ago, I think it was four, it was three years ago, maybe four, that God told me, Jackie, I really want you to start studying Saul and David. And I didn't know why, but I said, okay, I'll start studying Saul and David. And I went through verse by verse. What's the difference between Saul? What was the difference between David? And then uh, probably about a year and a half ago, I set it aside. Because I thought, God, I don't know what that was all about, but okay, right? And and one thing I want to encourage you is if you hear from God to study something, you'll never know when you're going to use it. I think sometimes we live in that fast food society where we say, "Um, when am I going to use it? God, I've studied it all, now I'm ready to go. And it was actually almost a year and a half before I started seeing application for what I learned. So when I was thinking about this, I was going back to my Saul and David study. And I started thinking about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I am really embarrassed to tell you this. but Well, I'm not really embarrassed. Yeah, kind of. I didn't know what the contents of the Ark of the Covenant was. I mean, you hear about the Ark of the Covenant, but a lot of times they don't focus on what is the context inside the Ark. So I looked. I knew the Ten Commandments were in there because, you know, you see that in the Ten Commandments. And, you know, you talk about that. So we know those tablets are there. I did not know, however, that the rod of Aaron was there. So I read that in the... in in the story, and I said, hmm, wonder what the rod of Aaron is all about. Why was that rod so important? So I started digging a little deeper, and I found that the rod of Aaron is the same rod that when Moses came up to the pharaoh, when the pharaoh says, well, I have magicians, they can do the same type of tricks. So the magicians threw their rods down on the ground, and the pharaoh, and, and those rods turned into serpents. And then Moses grabbed Aaron's rod, threw it on the ground, and it was Aaron's rod that was the serpent that ate up all the other serpents and I, I guess I just thought that was Moses' rod that they did that with. The other th- idea about Aaron's rod is when they were in the wilderness, the twelve tribes of Israel were disputing amongst themselves as to the um, as to whether Aaron was fit to rule in response, Moses tells all of the leaders of the 12 tribes, to grab their rods and throw it in the tabernacle. If by the next day one of the rods blooms and sprouts, then we will know who's fit to rule. So they all threw their rods inside the tabernacle, and then the next day they walked in the tabernacle, and sure enough, Aaron's rod was the one that blossomed into almond flowers and almonds. And so it was a sign that Aaron was fit to rule. So Aaron is from the tribe of Levi, and he was from the priestly tribe. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that the rod was um, was in there. When you think about that, though, it's kind of cool, because you think rod is a sign of authority. You give a shepherd their rod in order to rule their sheep or to lead their sheep. You give kings their scepters. You always see those pictures of kings holding their scepters, which is a rod. And it's a sign of Sub, subvert, um, submission, yeah, to try to have authority to rule in over people. Uh, so I started thinking about this and I thought, but Aaron's rod blossomed. It had fruit, which means that Aaron's ministry shows that he has fruit. And the Ark of the Covenant has a rod in there that produces fruit. The other thing in the Ark of the Covenant was the gold vessel that had the manna from heaven, which shows God's provision, God's blessing, God's increase, God's prosperity. So we have this ark that is full of God's word, God's leadership or our leadership, that's a fruitful leadership and the abundance and blessing of God. And the one thing that I knew about the Ark of the Covenant, it's the thing that they took in battle. So, you know, when I teach the kids, it's the Ark of the Covenant that they bring out in Jericho. And caused the walls to fall down. It's something that they always brought out when they needed the glory of God to come in and fight their battles. When I was looking at the comparison between Saul and David, Saul used the Ark of the Covenant, but he used it in battle. So he brought that Ark out. So that he could subdue a country. He could subdue a people. He could conquer a people and take their lands in a lot of cases. It was through violence that Saul used the Ark of the Covenant. When you look at David's account, David probably did a little bit of that as well. But when David was finally established king of the, of the country and he was establishing his reign, he decided he was going to bring the ark into the, the city And place it back in the tabernacle where it belongs. And it even mentions in the Bible that Saul never did this. Saul never decided it was important to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David. David thought it was important. So David starts, I could just see this, he starts up his establishment as king. He's got his advisors, he's got his men So he gets his advisors together and they decide what's the best way to bring the Ark of the Covenant back in. It's like planning a big party. And he gets 30,000 of his men, which shows might, because a lot of times if you, you know, in battle, the more men that you have, it it shows might, right? He gets uh, a cart, because back then in processions, when you bring something important into the city, you use a cart, right? So he brings a cart, he gets an oxen. He brings two guys to help stabilize or to walk beside the ark. And one's name was Uzzah, whose name actually means strength. So he's showing strength when he goes and gets that ark. He's got 30,000 men. He's got the oxen. He's got the cart. He's got strength, which is Uzzah, next beside the ark. And they grab the ark and they start bringing it back into the city until they hit this threshing floor. When they hit the fresh threshing floor, the ox stumbles and Uzzah reaches up to grab the ark and stabilize it. And in response, he dies because he touches the ark and it strikes him dead. David does what all of us would do. You're planning a party. You have 30,000 people, 30,000 witnesses. And this is not going well. This is not going like planned. So he does like we all do. He gets angry and he blames Someone. And it says he was angry at God. Don't we have some of those feelings sometimes? Things go well and God should be on our side. And I've done all of my humanly efforts to get that to work and it doesn't work. And so I'm going to blame God. I'm going to feel ashamed. I'm going to disconnect myself from God and I'm going to walk away. So he disconnects himself from the glory of God that's in the Ark of the Covenant. And he walks back to the city of David. But here's the thing that is different with David. David realizes that he's going to do a temporal comparison. He doesn't do, oh, man, I'm unworthy. Look at all these other people that could have done a better job. I'm not enough. David does something different. He does a temporal comparison. And he says, what did I do wrong? What did I, what, what could I do differently in bringing the ark? At the same time, he's hearing that this ark was given to the house of Obed-Edom, I know that's a hard thing. He gave it to that house, and they're becoming wealthy and prosperous. He says it wasn't the ark, and it wasn't God that caused this to happen. There's something that I did wrong, and I know I can do better. So he started talking to, um, uh, started researching, started talking, kind of like we, we do, and he found out that in order to get the ark someplace, you have to have the tribe of Levi to come and get the ark and to transfer it. And I thought, what's really special about this tribe of Levi? As I'm digging a little deeper. And I find that Levi, the tribe of Levi, was actually the tribe that did the priestly duties. They were the tribe that lived in the cities that if you wanted to find refuge and peace, you could go to these cities and find refuge and peace. They were the ones that ushered peace in, that ushered God in. So he decides to get the Levites and get them ready to carry in the ark. The other thing that David did, which I thought was interesting, is he got rid of his warlike being. He took off his armor, he got rid of his 30,000 men that showed might. and he wore an, an ephod, or an, and uh, that's like this uh, uh, That's like this vest that they wear over. And that's all he wore and and very little else. He wore the necessity when he was taking the ark in. So I think what David decided was he was going to take off his, what made him famous, really, his armor and his warlike quality. He was a different king at this point. He no longer had to conquer. He no longer had to prove himself as a as a warrior. He was in a different place. So he took all of that off. He put on the ephod and danced while he was bringing in the ark to the city. And he was successful. The ark came in. He he um, brings it into the tent that they prepared for the ark of the covenant. And he feeds his people. Only to go home to his wife, Michal, who was very angry with him. She was mad that he was dancing before common people. She was mad. She was looking down on the people, and she was angry because he was not being kingly. She was comparing him to others. She was ashamed of him. And in response, she disconnected herself from her people and her king and her husband, and it says that her life from then on was not fruitful. So I'm thinking, as Christians today, how does this apply? How can we take this lesson that David and Nicole and find uh, more of a fruitful life or be relevant today? And I started thinking about this. What is the ark? The ark is the presence of God. It's the glory of God that we carry within us. But he tried that. He He tried that two times. He tried it, one with the might of men. And with a pretense of his old warlike persona, and that showed death. It didn't show abundance. It didn't show fertility. It showed death. It wasn't until he decided to escort God's presence, God's glory, in a priest-like way, um, with him being practically naked in front of his people, that he was successful. I looked up what an ephod was because I thought, well, that's interesting, because why would you mention a certain piece of clothing? It's got to be kind of relevant to the story. I found that an ephod is what priests wore. And, you know, we, I think I've always known that. But throughout the Bible, there's also another reference for ephod, and it's a receptacle. It contains something holy So when you think about how great that vision is, that here's David and the only article of clothing of value that he's wearing, when he could have worn all the kingly robes, priestly robes, whatever, the only article of clothing that he's wearing is something that could be a receptacle honoring a holy thing. And when you think about how God is with us, he honors everything within us. He sees us as holy. And David wasn't perfect. Wasn't perfect by any means. He made a mistake. He killed a guy because he made a mistake. But yet he was still being honored by God as someone holy, someone worthy, and someone that was enough in, at the time. Then we look at how he came into the procession. He came in wearing nothing. Out of all the things that he could have worn, out of all the pretenses that he could have had within the crowd, he decided to go completely, practically naked. And this was his comment to Michal. He says, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children the day of his death. So David realized that in order to reach his people and in order to bless his people with the presence and the whole the glory of God he had to step down and be with his people and be with what they considered the lowliest of low people to connect. He his interest was to provide connection, not disconnection. So how do we think about this today? When I was thinking about some of the, um, the past life, and I'm just talking about my own Christian walk and some of the experiences that I've had over the past 20 years. I was thinking about how I may have looked to others being a Christian. I actually was the one in that video that was peeking through the hole with the sandwich trying to draw the little silver lining and solve everybody's problems. I wasn't relevant to that person that was struggling and hurting. I was smug. I was uh, hiding behind a um, non-fruitful perspective of Christianity. And I was not effective. I did not have a flourishing Christian connection with people that I worked with or people that I hung out with. It was unsatisfying for me, which was probably why I chose to to work with kids, because that was satisfying. I did connect with kids because there was no comparison. I could be as silly as I want to. I could listen to their problems because a lot of times advice wasn't advice with kids. You just hug them and say, it'll be a better day tomorrow. I was with them. And what I realized was I was not as good with adults as I was with kids, and I needed to start working on that. Think about over the past 20 years, some of the stuff that we've had um, in the church. One is spiritual warfare. I started thinking about spiritual warfare, and I thought, that's interesting. We have, I know I have in my past done spiritual warfare. I'm going to to face the, the darkness of the principalities, And my view was that I was going to move the darkness out of the way so that the lightness can shine. And that was a warlike approach to how I was going to meet others to, to bring them to Christ. So actually, in all actuality, I was in war with the people that I actually wanted to bring love to. Because when I looked at someone and I saw that they have problems. One, I tried to solve their problems, so I would give them my advice. And when they weren't behaving, I became angry and started doing warfare against them. It was a totally Saul approach to Christianity. We worry so much about uh, fighting principalities and fighting the darkness that we actually distance ourselves and disconnect ourselves to the actual problems that people have out there. We look at people and we say, not not we, I could say I am looking at people and I say, or I used to, I would look at people and i say, man, you just really aren't behaving. Or I'd look at our city that when they voted the different rulings that we had, the pot places, I'd say, oh, that's darkness coming in. We need to call upon, we need to fight against those forces of darkness. And what I was actually doing was taking a Saul-like approach warring against the people I actually wanted to love. I was looking down at the tower, judging those for the decisions that they've made. Now I'm looking at it a little differently. I'm thinking, if I were to take a David's approach, I would show more vulnerability within myself. I would cast away all of those pretenses of who I want people to see me to be. And this takes courage because a lot of times if on Facebook, it is natural to want to put our best face forward. I would constantly think when I'm in a group of people about what I'm going to say, judge it before I even said it. Because I was afraid that I would not be accepted for what I truly believe. So I was disconnecting myself. I was not relevant to those that were really struggling. I wasn't bringing up my past life as something, as understanding those emotions could connect with the same pain and and suffering that those people are feeling. Because I was disconnected with my past. I was at war with my past. I was at war with people. And I was totally not relevant. In order to, I think, I know, in order to meet people today, we as people are going to have to show courage. When you look at the word courage, and and again, I'm quoting Brene Brown, when when you look at the word courage, the root for that is C-O-R, which means heart. So when we look at courage, it actually is to be present with your whole heart. To be there with who you truly are, with no hiding, no comparison, and no shame. In order to connect, you need to be, have the courage to be able to share the whole you, the imperfect you, and to realize that you are ju- enough for that time. When you look at that, um, you can see how if we take this approach, we can be more relevant to those who are suffering around us. If we take the time to stop and just be present with those who are suffering and be present to those that are um, walking just the messy parts of life, then we would be more effective in ushering the glory of God. You see, we have more than um, what most people have as far as, well, we have definitely more than what most people have to offer people who are in pain. We all, looking at all of you guys, we come from different backgrounds. We come from different choices. We come from different ethnic um, backgrounds, different parenting. But one thing that we have in common is the Spirit of God. We all have the ark inside of us. We all have that peace that we can relate and connect to at a deeper level than what you can with people that do not hold and carry and usher in the glory of God. We have that. And it's our connection as a people in this church, in this local church, and our love for one another and our willingness to be imperfect and enough to each other that can cause um, fruit in Aaron's rod. We are the ones that can go out and be present with someone with the Holy Spirit and with the glory of God to cause a change and a difference in those people's lives. So we need to start looking at things a little differently. We need to stop worrying against those people that don't behave in our community. We need to start being, because, stop being angry at the fact that what we're trying to accomplish in the Spirit is not coming to pass, and therefore being angry with rulers and, and principalities and people out there because they're not behaving We need to just realize that we're enough. And all we have to do is is be present to the people we work with. Be present to the people we hang out with. Be present to our children and realize that life is messy. And through trial, instead of rescuing people through trial, I'm going to walk beside you through trial. And I'm just going to be there. I'm not going to give you advice. I'm just going to be there with you because you're going through your own research paper on what to do. Right. So that's pretty much all I had today. Um, But um, I I see things changing. I see our our community changing with how our approaches are going to be in the future. And I'm actually very excited about this. And I think that if we bind together as a group here at this church, that we can actually start meeting the needs of the community that they so desperately need. That's it.